Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Ministry, Word, and Sacraments with Martin Chemnitz, where we are taking our time going through this handbook of doctrine from the 16th century, which, of course, in its original context was meant for pastors to get all the pastors on the same page. And then likewise, congregations needed to be aware of it so that they could determine if their pastor was on the wrong page. So this is a wonderful and valuable tool. We've been marching through, systematically taking our time. We are on page 57. We're looking at sin, and we're talking about the, uh, some of the most important distinctions in regard to sin. So, if you recall two weeks ago, that somehow feels like two years ago, with Holy Week and everything in between. At question 97, we introduced the distinction between original and actual sin. The difference between being a crabapple tree... It bears no apples, and then what is a crab apple tree when it does get around to bearing its fruit? Crab apples, obviously, and so you can be a bad tree without bearing any bad fruit. There's a distinction one can make there, and yet just because you're a bad tree, does that mean the landowner's going to want you there? Nope. Crab apples are not. He wants to get rid of the tree and give the soil to something good. So that's the distinction between original and actual, and that's where you can kind of make these audacious sounding statements like, even if you never committed a single thought, word, or deed that is sinful, you would still end up in hell. I don't know what the point is of all of that, other than to illustrate the point that simply the ontic reality, the reality of one's being a sinner, is in fact enough to damn even though that's in the abstract for us. Okay, likewise on question 98, mortal and venial, which he has indicated that we'll get to talk about this a little bit more in the future, but from a Lutheran view, it's not that some sins are super bad and thus they're deadly or mortal and others are venial, that is, they're less than deadly, But rather for Lutherans, a mortal sin is going to be that sin that one does not have contrition for, that one does not repent of. That's going to be a mortal sin. Whereas venial sin are going to be those sins that we commit that are not reckoned against us on account of our repentance. It can be more complicated than that, but that's a basic and helpful distinction. And of course, we Lutherans, though, don't shy away from the idea that Obviously, there are varying degrees of sin. There are some sins that are worse than others, clearly. And there are different kinds of sins and different dynamics to the sins. And at, if you just take some idea like the seven deadly sins, while again, we're going to read that through our filter of what makes something deadly or not deadly, that's one's repentance or lack of repentance, even still, we're going to take a concept like the seven deadly sins very seriously because we're going to recognize here um, kinds of deep-rooted sinful dynamics, desires, passions within that then manifest themselves in any number of additional sins. So that's worth noting, too, that we don't just oversimplify this and dismiss uh, the wisdom of the church. 
Okay, we talked about original sin, um, and, I, and, and I don't think Chemnitz mentions this, but I mentioned the term concupiscence, that desire that is contrary to God. And then as we enter the new material, let's pick back up at 101 and 102. But before we do, we'll have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so question 101. You know, where, does, where does original sin come from, and how does it come? Question 101 is, but how? Only by the similitude and imitation of the sin of Adam? Is that how sin is passed on? Is it not a, to use our more modern categories, is it not at all a nature thing, but strictly a nurture thing? We learn to sin from our parents who learn to sin from their parents. Is that all that's going on? That's the first question. He continues, or only by the guilt of the actual sin of Adam while our nature is pure and innocent. Okay, so Adam's sin, it's like sort of like if you, uh, I mean, we don't really live in this kind of culture anymore, but maybe to some, oh yeah, we do, if I think about it this way. Um, okay, so if your sin is that Donald Trump is your father, and of course he's the worst, most heinous, most hated villain, and so you, simply by virtue of being his child, suffer the consequences of his sin. All of this is tongue-in-cheek. I see furrowed brows. Relax. <laughs> but what I'm, all I'm trying to communicate is, so if Adam is our father and on account of his sin, then because we're his children, we bear the shame of that sin, the reputation of that sin. Is that what we mean when we're talking about original sin? That would be the modern translation of Kenneth's question. And the answer here is no. So, no to both. Let's see what Chemnitz writes. Original sin is not simply actual imitation of the bad example of Adam, nor only bear guilt because of the fall of Adam, as an honorable son is often made to bear the disgrace of his mother with no fault of his own. But as the church sings, Dirch Adam's fall <laughs> ist ganst verderbt. Now, anyway, you can read the rest. What's the translation? All mankind fell in Adam's fall. One common sin infects us all. And you recognize that refrain, don't you? Yeah. So that's a hymn we continue to sing today. Original sin, Kenneth continues, therefore passed through one man to all by carnal propagation. Namely because nature in its very origin is conceived and born sinful. All right. And we want to be careful with this. Those of you who are in the Thursday morning service and were as part of that service reading devotionally the Book of Concord, the first article of the Formula of Concord on original sin makes this apparent for us that God creates human beings to be good, 
So we are, in our essence, good creatures of God, but original sin has thoroughly and, corrupt, thoroughly and completely corrupted and tainted all of our powers and abilities and everything else. So you can think of it like, you can think of it kind of like this by analogy. You've got a glass of milk. It's great, it's pure, it's wholesome. You're not lactose intolerant, so there's no problems. Okay. And then if you put in some sort of poison or something disgusting that's going to make you sick, and you mix it in with the milk, do you want to drink that milk? No. Which part of that milk is corrupted to you? All of it. Is there any part of that milk that remains good for you to drink? No. And that's what we mean when we confess in the divine service that we are by nature sinful and unclean. Or here you see that same language because nature in its very origin is conceived and born sinful. We're talking about the poison milk. And if you take poison milk from your parents, like your parents now are the poisoned glass of milk, and you pour that out into another glass, that's the child. What's the child? Poison milk. (laughs) Just a smaller glass of... So another way to think of this is ducks beget ducks, so sinners beget sinners. Yeah. That's all that's being stated here. And Kenneth isn't going any further than that because when Christ becomes man, does he become, by virtue of his incarnation, does he become sinful? No. He who knew no sin, St. Paul says, he's the unblemished Lamb, he's the sinless son of God. So to become human does not mean to become a sinner. So if you can become human without sin, then sin isn't an essential property or quality of what it means to be human. It's merely an accidental property of what it means now that humanity has fallen into sin. That is to say, you could add the sinful corruption or remove the sinful corruption. You still have a human being, whether sin's there or not. And that's so important because when Christ comes, he comes to take away sin, and we're going to be purged of our sin so that we're going to be no less human, no less God's good creature in the new heavens and the new earth than we are now. In fact, all the more because sin and all of its corruption will be removed from us. And then we'll be likewise glorified as God sees fit. Make sense so far? Question or no? Okay, I see, I see. okay, hang on, um, go, go right ahead. But I think you were first, I don't want to dox you by saying your name. I was just going to uh, ask if um, the verse that talks about the sins of the father go on for two, three, four generations. Mm-hmm. I used to think that, well, generationally it will expire and then you will have a newer generation, you know, but that's not the case obviously. But I just wanted to point that, if you could interpret that verse a little bit for me, does that um, the sins of the father propagate or, or proceed into future generations? But it seems to indicate that there's a limit to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and limits because God can offer corrective to that as mm-hmm. well. So sometimes this is dealt with under the label of generational sin. And it's a complicated discussion with a number of open questions to it. But it is, I think it's obvious that we all know to one degree or another that the sins of the parents 
show up in the children and so on down the line to one degree or another. I think that's a fairly safe observation. I think it's in keeping with biblical teaching. And if that's what we mean in terms of generational sin, it makes perfect sense. We don't have to distinguish between nature and nurture per se. I mean, although it's interesting, is it passed down in the very genes? Perhaps so. I mean, especially if you think like, oh, she got dad's short temper. You know, that's the kind of thing we say, indicating that there's an organic and ontological connection between the offspring and their parents. And so that kind of temperament, I fail to see how it couldn't be nature, how it couldn't be genetically passed on. Um, Also, just because we're not this tabla rasa, there is no such thing as a blank slate. I mean, you are your parents' flesh. And so you carry that with you. Now, can that be overcome? Of course. It's overcome in the twofold way of Christ overcoming it. First, by forensically justifying us by not reckoning our sins against us for the sake of Christ's shed blood, cleansing us in that sense, but then cleansing in the sense of purging out and changing so that we can't actually buck the trend, especially empowered, I mean, empowered by Christ, we can buck the trend. So, yeah, it's worth, yeah, worth paying attention to, worth paying attention to. When you go to the doctor's office, and you fill for the first time, and you're filling out the 50 sheets of whatever you fill out, one of those sheets asks you to identify various physical and mental defects held by your parents or grandparents. There's a physical reality to that. The brain's physical. <laughs> Should we not think that that also then... So in other words, I think that there's a spiritual kind of inventory we should take of ourselves too. And I was in a minor way taught to do this by my parents. And that's just, I remember being an adult and they sat sat me down and they say, here's some of the things that have gone on in your family line that you need to be aware of. And uh, And I think that that's really good because it kind of grounds you and helps you understand in the same way you've sort of got a medical genealogy you have a spiritual genealogy. You have different, you know, there's different families that struggle with different things. It's, it's, I think it's as helpful or more to be aware of that than it is to be aware of, well, my grandpa had heart problems. So I should probably be on the lookout for that. Yeah. Okay, please. Yeah, I've been in interesting um, discussions and conversations about if Christ was born without sin... How could he have been tempted in the first place? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what would be the Lutheran response to that question? Yeah, it's a complicated topic to be sure, but the answer that the scriptures give us is just very simple. So Christ is tempted. That's an external temptation. Now, the difference between... So he faces every external temptation that we face, and yet he does so perfectly and without sin. That's what that verse is saying. He faced the temptation of Satan, Adam, and Eve in the garden, uncorrupted by their flesh. I mean, in a state of goodness in which God had created them, they fell particularly Eve and, then Eve, and then Adam falls to Eve. Eve falls to the serpent. 
such was the tempter's ability and the tempter's might. But of course, when he tempts Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus rebuffs all of these temptations and is without sin. The key difference between... um, So that's what that verse is saying. Now, when we try to analyze it beyond that, which I think is fair to do, we can see a difference that when we meet external temptation, there's an inward desire that somehow connects with that. But Jesus didn't have that inward desire that connects with it because that inward desire is itself sin. Furthermore, even without an external temptation, we have these inner desires or passions that cause us to uh, pursue things. You know, it's not like we're sitting around innocently and we see a commercial and thus we go out and indulge in our gluttony. We see, you know, some kind of food commercial. We go order a pizza and eat it all. Like, we're hungry. And we go to the refrigerator, and we eat, and then we eat more, and then we eat still more, and then we've got to have dessert, and then you've got to have something to even out the dessert, and then you've well, you got to have dessert again. And so you don't need, we don't need an external, we don't necessarily need an external temptation in order to experience these disordered passions or desires within us. And I'm just picking on one. I mean, obviously, there are any others that we could pick on. Um, we, all, we all experience these things. And sometimes those desires, too, we just try to medicate with stuff. And, that, and then it's not so much the thing itself, but um, I mean to say, like, it's not so much the medication itself, it's the inner problem that we're trying to relieve, but we can't. And that's a kind of passion and disordering of the soul as well. So those things are things that Jesus didn't experience. Those are inherent to being a fallen human being. Jesus is not sinful and so does not have those desires or passions. He's a good tree that bears good fruit. He faces all the external temptations that humanity has faced and that humanity has fallen to. Obviously, we fall to them frequently because even Adam and Eve could not withstand them in the garden, even though they were equipped to do so. Okay, was there another hand? Yeah, please. Oh, oh, I see. Yes, please. Go ahead. You have the mic. Oh, what about uh, Mary, Mary's sinful nature mm-hmm. carrying to Jesus? Can you explain? Yeah, sure. So you have the invention of the immaculate conception of Mary, the thought being that if Jesus is born of Mary's flesh and she's a sinner then he's going to be born of sinful flesh. And so you have this doctrine invented. And I mean, there's other reasons. It's not like that's the only reason. It's not like this deus ex machina kind of deal. But you've got this doctrine then that's foisted upon us that you just find nowhere in the apostolic teachings, nowhere in the apostolic scriptures, that Mary somehow has to be sinless. Um, And her mode and method of being sinless is that she herself is conceived without sin. Um, That's what it means to be immaculately conceived through a miracle. But it's kind of like, I don't know. To me, it's unconvincing, even just logically, because like, I guess you could locate the miracle there. Why not just locate it anywhere else? Why not just locate it that her sin didn't transmit on to Christ? She does refer to God as her Savior. So, 
I think it's technically an open question. I think you can technically hold to the sinlessness of Mary or even the Immaculate Conception. It's not a breach of fellowship. But I think if you demand that people believe that, now you're binding consciences where God's word hasn't bound them. So another theory that, and it's just all theorizing, I think that this is Luther, but I could be mistaken. Yeah, I don't have a high degree of certainty that it's Luther, so take it with a grain of salt. But another theory, nonetheless, is that the sin is passed on specifically through the male. So the, ne- so the necessity... It's not saying that... I mean, husband and wife are both sinners, but the sin is genetically passed on through the male. So if you remove the male then it's not passed on. Thus, it makes sense to have a virgin conception and a virgin birth. So that rationale is present. Certainly, I think, in the Reformational Church, but probably also in the medieval church. So there's different ways of thinking about it. I mean, I don't know, to a certain point, I I mean, at a certain point, it's just, it's all kind of speculative and like, well, God can do whatever he wants. In theory, in theory, God could have had, I mean, Mary and Joseph, you know, conceive, on a theory on this particular point, not in general, on this particular point, Mary and Joseph conceive and he just says, there's, you know, this is going to be the Messiah and he's going to be sinless. God can do whatever he wants. So, you know, at a certain point, it's kind of silly, I think, for us to chase all like, well, where exactly did the miracle happen? <laughs> Who knows? Scriptures don't reveal it. Anything else? Well, oh, yes, we had a hand over here. Um, can we pass the mic over this way? My question was actually on the same subject. Oh, okay. But if I remember, you've talked about this before. I'm, and you mentioned, I think, the verse, through Adam all sinned. Mm-hmm. And there must be significance in that because it could have read through Eve. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, certainly you could point to that if you wanted to suggest that. I just, I mean, you have to make the case that that particular, which is fairly general language, that that particularly okay. means that sin passes through the male in conception. That might be a bridge too far. I don't know that that's a proof text or not. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be sure, I, just to clean this up a little bit, I don't think, I think that. I don't think that there could be a Messiah in any other way than for there to be God and a virgin woman. I think that that's it. That's my that's my take on that. Yeah, the seed of the woman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that it's that it's of necessity, and that it's of necessity that Christ died um, as the Son of God incarnate. It's of necessity that the world would be redeemed through the very one through which it was made. I don't think these things are arbitrary. I don't think God's like, hey, well, arbitrarily you need to be born of a virgin. Arbitrarily you're going to die for the sins of the world. I don't think that that's right at all. I think it's all baked in. Okay. So picking up then at question 102, did God from the beginning make the nature of man thus corrupt? By no means. And for those of you tracking on Thursday morning, that's effectively the Manichaean error. 
Remember, we had the Pelagian error, and then we're set up for next week, the Manichaean error. So we'll hear more about this. But this is the idea that God makes people sinful. God creates fallen beings. It's not true. But God in the beginning created man exactly according to his image, so that in mind, will, and heart, in fact, in the whole nature and in all the powers of man, truth, holiness, and righteousness, that is an altogether lovely conformity with the divine mind and will, might shine forth. Ephesians 4.24 is referenced. Um, This is a really important point theologically that God creates man in his image and that to be in the image of man is to be, or to be in the image of God, excuse me, is to be in conformity with the divine mind and will. How could it be otherwise? So when we ask the question of like, well, what is the divine mind and will? That's where we look to the scriptures and we see then what it means to be in conformity once again. So this just, it's all important to see at this level and to see Chemnitz, one of our Lutheran forebears, doing theology this way. The point being that we're being returned to conformity with the divine mind and will. The point being is insofar as the image is restored to us in Christ Jesus, as we're incorporated into Christ Jesus, that is going to manifest itself in our own mind, will, and heart, to use Chemnitz language, being conformed, being in conformity with the divine mind and will. All right, he continues. But seduced by the wiles of the devil, our first parents of their own free will turn themselves away from God and his obedience. Through this fall, they lost those most outstanding and most beautiful gifts received at creation. So when you notice the language of free will here, very important, very helpful to distinguish between the four different states in which we find man, and this is part of Article 1 of the Formula of Concord on Original Sin. That's you find man prior to the fall. And so we're going to talk, like, what could Adam and Eve do before they fell? How can we talk about their will? And there's nothing wrong in the least with talking about their will as being free. Okay. After the fall, before redemption, that's the next state. And here the scriptures indicate no freedom at all. But the, the things of the Spirit of God are foreign to the things of the fallen flesh of man. We are all dead in our trespasses in this state until God makes us alive in Christ Jesus, until he comes via his word creating faith within us and makes us new. So those are the first two states, Adam and Eve in perfection, good, free, etc. We can talk about them in a certain way. After the fall before redemption, we talk about man in a different kind of state as not having a free will whatsoever. And then when we talk about man being redeemed, being renewed by the Holy Spirit of God, that's what it means to be a Christian. Now we're on the third state, and here there is a way we can start to talk about the free will again, the will freed from sin, and thus free being in conformity with God's will. 
And then the fourth and final state is going to be the perfection of that, the removal of the flesh and its contrary will within us. You know, the good I want to do, I do not. The removal of that contrary will from us and the ultimate uh, glorification of our persons in the new heavens and the new earth. Then we'll be able to talk about freedom in an altogether different way. And because Christ uses the language of eternity and eternal life and this kind of thing, our, our, we assume, and I think it's a pretty solid assumption, it's based on his word, that there's not going to be another tree by which we can fall in the new heavens and the new earth. So then freedom, even then, even if only nuanced, is going to take on a different character than that of Adam and Eve, or a, or a different maybe limitation or set of possibilities than it once had in the... I mean, could you imagine if there was a tree in the new heavens and the new earth that if you ate of it, we'd have to go back and do this all again? I might just sit there by that tree real grumpy, <laughs> just staring at everyone who even like comes to sniff at a leaf. What are you doing? But I think we all would, you know, no way. So I don't think God's going to make any allowance for that whatsoever. And in all the depictions of the new heavens and the new earth and the new reality, the ability to fall is never part of it. Yes, please. All the way, oh, all the way in the back. Sorry to make you. Take your time. Take your time. Pass on it? Okay, fair enough. Okay, so we can find these four different states. We can find human will um, differently expressed in these different states. And that's um, why in the formula of Concord, you have Article 1 on original sin, and Article 2 is on free will. And the short teaching there is that in terms of our justification, the human will has no participation in it whatsoever. In fact, the human will is oriented against God and does not want to be justified. God overcomes our contrary will and converts our will, making us willing, believing children of God. That's justification. Then sanctification, because he has made us, by the power of his word and spirit, willing, believing people, now we can cooperate with God in terms of the good works he has laid out for us to do. And that's a working with God, a cooperation with God, cooperation with God. Um, that's the second part of Article 2. It's the part we've become least familiar with here in Lutheranism as of late, but we need to get refreshed in it because to do otherwise is to deny the Holy Spirit and so many of the glorious gifts God gives to us through justification. Okay, so that takes us through question 102. On to 103, good. But what harm can result for us from this that Adam and Eve lost their gifts? Very much indeed, for Adam was made in such a way by God that he might be the original root out of which the whole human race might be propagated. So put a finger there, because I think that this is of the utmost importance, and I'm constantly trying to repent of my American worldview and American perception where everybody's independent and individual and his own man or, his, or her own woman, whatever the case may be. Uh, this is a profound statement about the ontology of humanity, that there is no such thing as one man. Because Adam was created as a root of a tree. 
there is no such thing as one man. One man is no man. We are all together one man, one humanity, one tree. So as it goes for the root, so it's going to go for the rest. And if you visualize this, I know we all visualize ourselves as like, yeah, I belong to the human race, but I'm me and I'm independent and I'm separate. And it's like, no, no, sir. You would be much better to picture the human race as a tree and here you are as a twig or a leaf or a piece of fruit or whatever you want to visualize, but you can in no way be separated from this tree. And this, by the way, also has profound consequences for how we view sin. And we talked about generational sin just a minute ago. But um, just the idea that what you do doesn't just affect you, even if you think it does. Because we are all interconnected in ways that we can't fathom or understand. We're not given to because we're a piece of the whole. We're a part of the sum, not the whole thing. And we're intimately connected with the rest of humanity in ways that we ourselves don't understand. It takes God himself who made man, who is outside of man, to tell us this. Uh, It's nonetheless true. Obviously. Yes, please. Uh, Some people in the mental health world are trying to retrieve and give a better reputation for the word codependent became such an ugly word mm, yeah. and and nobody should be that and yet healthy codependency is what it's all about mm-hmm. absolutely there's yeah in fact there's no such thing as independence yeah i mean hell would probably be pretty close to independent mm-hmm. you you've lost all relationships you're just so you know hell is solipsism I, I exist unto myself and nobody else matters except to serve me. That's effectively hell. Lonely, isolated, not caring. Yeah. yeah. So to be human is to be oriented toward one another and toward God. It's to sort of be empty of the ego. Not, not empty of the self. The self is fine, but the self has to be within the whole. So whole and self have to be two equal realities. All right, so once more from Chemnitz, you can see that this isn't, you know, Rhodey's idea. Adam was made in such a way by God that he might be the original root out of which the whole human race might be propagated. And God put in his nature as hereditary the good things that we have mentioned so that had he remained in that original integrity and righteousness, he should have transmitted them as hereditary righteousness to all his descendants by natural propagation. This is why the best of the church fathers think that Adam knew more spiritually than we did, and that Adam was more advanced also in terms of his knowledge of the physical world, and the animals and creatures and plants and mountains and earth and everything that is, Adam was more knowledgeable than we are today, even with all our quote-unquote science, because Adam's faculties were utterly uncorrupted. So imagine being able to just, not only with pure reason, but with pure intuition. Imagine having an intimate knowledge of God as distinct from, but never separate from, 
your own perception. As he perceives, you perceive. There's a kind of objectivity that goes along with it. Again, we've flip-flopped this as we've, we've uh, imbibed the idea, evolutionary ideas that we're constantly getting better and better. Then we've inferred that Adam and Eve must have basically been cavemen. The, scienti- uh, the, the Sunday school drawings, unfortunately, convert, confirm this. Sometimes when you see Adam and Eve looking a little more like than cavemen, you know. Sometimes they even got the little caveman stuff in the clubs. Or you see Cain and Abel, and Cain looks like a caveman with a club, and it's like... Not sure that's communicating the, the right thing here, because that just reinforces this idea that they're stupid and we're enlightened and wise. The church fathers virtually have held the opposite. All right, and God put in his nature as hereditary these good things mentioned... Okay, all of this is supposed to be passed on. And thus he lost those good things by the fall. Adam lost those good things by the fall, not only for himself, but also for all of us, his descendants. For we have been begotten according to his image and likeness. Yeah, Genesis 5.3, and I won't go back and read it again, but it makes a big deal. In fact, as big or bigger deal than previous in previous chapters of Genesis, where God says, let us make man in our image, male and female, he made them um, in his image and likeness, etc. An even bigger deal is made in Genesis 5, that after the fall, Adam's offsprings are made in the image and likeness of Adam, of fallen Adam. So that is a profound, quote-unquote, proof text, or Sadie's doctrina for the loss of the image of God. Okay, we, and we bear the image of the earthly. So 1 Corinthians 15 here cited, like this is the mortal and the corruptible. So our mortality and our corruption and our sin, these are all interwoven together. They're the same, they're the same reality. They're just different aspects of the same reality. Remember, death is first spiritual death, then the separation of the body and the soul, and then the soul experiencing um, <clears throat> the effects of sin and the effects of the curse forever and separation from God. It's all one reality. So we bear the image of the earthly And then, for as he was made by the fall, so are we now by nature. That is, what happened to Adam on account of the fall is now what we experience in our own nature, in our own flesh, in our own being. Okay, and what then does the nature of original sin properly consist so that we might learn somehow to recognize that evil born with us and inherent in us. All right, and he's got three different answers here. First, in the defect or lack of original righteousness, namely that our nature in and by its first birth does not have and does not bring with itself the conformity with the word and will of God that Adam made at the beginning in the image of God had. It also does not have the faculties or powers either to begin or to effect that conformity but it is now despoiled, denuded, and made destitute of those original gifts of righteousness. So if you went out to your average pagan and you just said, hey, um, let's assume you believe in God. Okay, what, what does it mean to be in conformity 
with God's will. If God is good, what does it look like for you to be good? And the kind of answer you're going to get is sort of a rough, depending upon who you're talking to, a rough reflection of the natural law. Well, you know, you should just be a good person. Help other people. You know, be kind to other people. Don't, don't murder anybody, you know. So you're going to get just a real rough reflection of the natural law at best. Is that anything even remotely close to who God is? I mean, it's kind of like trying to determine someone's facial structures by looking at their shadow. I mean, you're just going to look at a blob, and it, that blob could be anyone or anything. It's a reflection of the face, true enough. It's the natural law, true enough. But it's just a shadow. You can't see any contour. You couldn't identify one shadow over and against another. You don't know the person by knowing the shadow. So those are the, that's maybe all kind of examples, analogies, do have their weaknesses and do fall apart to this blindness that we are born into now. All right, second, in the very corruption of nature, namely that in our corrupted nature there, not only is that defect, but that in place of lost original righteousness are followed, and as poison pervaded our whole nature, a corrupt depravity. Here, ataxia or disorder. So taxia, like taxonomy, the ordering. A disorder or corrupt depravity. Destruction and corruption of all the powers of man. All right, so there's a taking away, there's a removal of, once, of what we once had. And that's the idea of the lack. That's the first category he's operating with. And then the second category is what is retained is twisted and mangled, disordered in ataxia. So, obviously, the mistake of particularly the post-enlightenment is that, your, that man's reason is the measure of all things, and man's reason is left uncorrupted and untainted. And this, to this day, is the argument of every atheist. They present a rationale for why God doesn't exist, why it's impossible to it, for him to exist, because in one way or another, they've figured it out. That's not actually rationality. That's the corrupted reason. So reason in its corrupted state can lead us to all kinds of wrong conclusions. Reason itself is just a tool and an insufficient tool, even in perfection, for grasping the fullness of God. But we've taken it as the epistemological tool, the religious tool, and that's a huge mistake. So even the best, and especially the best powers in man, are corrupted. Chemnitz continues, hence it is... That man by nature is strange and averse to the things that the divine will requires and cares either little or nothing for them or certainly does them unwillingly, as it were, with weariness and a certain dislike. So even when a person in the fallen state does the natural law, he does so in weariness or with a certain dislike. If it's been a little while since you've had little kids, this may have sort of faded in your mind. But if you tell your little kiddo, hey, I'd like you to go pick that up off the floor, 
Do they jump up joyfully, setting aside what it is they're doing, scramble over and pick it up, and not only pick it up, but recognize that there was another crumb on their way and pick that up as well, throw it all in the trash, and say, is there anything else I can do to be helpful to you, Father? How many times does that happen? Zero. And that's just a microcosm for this idea that even when man does good, he does, like fallen man, I mean here, the unbeliever, even when he does quote-unquote good, when he follows the quote-unquote, he has this civil righteousness, he follows the law externally, he does so with weariness and a certain dislike. He would much rather be on the beach with a Mai Tai in his hand. That might be another way to illustrate it. But God would truly, in his heart of hearts, rather be serving than enjoying. So there's a great distinction between the heart of God and the heart of fallen man. Okay, so let's continue with Kenneth's here, this idea of the corruption of what powers remain. But on the other hand, he is drawn and carried by natural appetite. And that's the concupiscence. That's the inner lust or desire. Um, And it's worth pointing out that properly speaking in Christian theology, lust doesn't just refer to sexual appetite. It refers to all of these appetites. And even within the Western church, I mean, even within classical Lutheranism, um, under the sixth commandment, which is, you know, you think of like, thou shalt not commit adultery, this kind of fundamental lust that destroys the profound gift of husband and wife brought together in one flesh creating the family, that, that's sort of like the high point of lust, but that lust carries on all of these other characteristics, these disordered appetites within us. And so that was the place that things like uh, gluttony or drunkenness or other kind of vices are treated classically as under the sixth commandment. Because the lust that destroys a marriage just has these lower forms that will destroy the body or destroy the mind or destroy one's relationships. Okay, so that's the um, natural appetite or desire. Continues on, so he is drawn and carried by natural appetite with all desire, the greatest pleasure. Why does doing evil simply feel good in and of itself? Being rebellious. I mean, all of, I don't have to convince you of this. This is what all of Hollywood is based on. It's what all rock stars and rappers are based on. Being bad is good. It looks fun. It looks awesome. Don't you want to be this way? Being a rebel. So that's the idea of the greatest pleasure. And that's the nature of the satisfaction of the appetite. Like at a certain point, you realize I don't actually need any more food. My body's telling me no. Um, I don't actually need any more alcohol. My body's telling me no. I don't actually need any more sex. It's not at this point in time uh, an actual like desire of the body. Okay? You can make these. You can start to see that the appetite becomes just an appetite to do what's wrong. I think Augustine talks about this with the pear, doesn't he? Where he talks about smashing all of the pears. Uh, or, I don't know, some, sometimes it's, t- it's taken that he, like, he and his friends eat the pears. And it's like, we weren't even hungry. Or, we, you know, this idea we, should, we just wanted to destroy something beautiful. Like, e- reveling in evil for evil's own sake. So this thing that Augustine experienced himself 
And he uses that in his confessions to demonstrate this reality. And it's really, it's really worth reflecting on. You can find yourself attracted when you're watching a movie, attracted to this character or that character, this thing or that thing. And, you know, part of the movie is you just kind of let down your guard and you're taken into this sort of story and this sort of like dream and you're participating in it that somebody set before you. If you are able to stop and analyze the thing that's like attracting you to that is the desire for evil or the desire to be this way or the desire to be this way without judgment and perhaps unto some achievable or desirable end, which is frequently how movies work. So like what would be an example to make it concrete? I'll pick on myself here. So I used to love the movie Braveheart. Braveheart, um, here's the ty- here's the, if you're a Braveheart fan, I'm sorry for saying this because it'll probably ruin it for you. But there, so if you think of this as a genre of film called revenge porn, I've probably just ruined hundreds of movies for you. Because now I can't even watch it without going out revenge porn. So revenge porn works this way, and it's completely gated towards males. And it works like this. Okay, male, underappreciated, lower caste of society, certainly like nobody but just trying to live his life, constantly gets pecked on and picked on, gets the things he loves the most taken away from him. And that's always the first like 20 to 30 minutes. And it's done in such a way that you just get so ticked off and you map onto this character all of your own feelings that are the same. And he is you and you are him. And guess what the next hour is? Him lopping off the heads of all his enemies and setting to right all that was wrong and rescuing what he lost or at least getting vengeance and revenge for it and it feels so darn good and it's so darn cathartic because that's not how our life works and we just wish for one minute we could live that out so it's revenge porn it's a fantasy of uh, satiating that inner desire for revenge and it feels so good so there's movie after movie after movie and there's subtypes of this movie too I'll ruin another whole genre of movie for you. Old guy who used to be top dog, but now isn't, but demonstrates and proves over the course of the next two hours that he is by gum. And he will whip all the young bucks and attract the lady that he should never attract. And it'll all happen. And that's another form of pornography. It's just a different lust being satiated. Uh, so it's a male, it's the male idea that even when I've gotten over the hill, I'm never over the hill. So our, this value of um, I could kick butt whenever I need to kick butt. I can be dominant whenever I need to be dominant, even if clearly I, in my, I already recognize physically that I can't do that anymore. Um, yeah. So, okay, I'm just ruining genres of movies here for you. But it's this idea, well, really what I'm trying to illustrate for you and then, you know, convince you of by virtue now of your own experience as opposed to just merely the Word of God. <laughs> and that is um, that, you can, that we all delight in evil and the heart is gated towards delighting in evil. And that's this idea of um, our natural appetites with all desires, with the greatest pleasure and a ready will to do those things that are repugnant to the will of God. 
we delight in them. They make sense to us, viscerally, in our flesh. Okay, he continues to wrap up the second category. Thus, out of such an evil root, nothing but evil fruits can come forth. And then again, just a slew of scriptures. Like, if you're not buying all of this, uh, just start looking up these scriptures. Go to the Formula of Concord in the Book of Concord on uh, free will and read the first half of that article. That's what convinced me. I was uh, just in college kind of starting to take Christianity seriously again and just kind of imbibe the spirit around us of free will. And I'll never forget reading Article 2, the first half of it in the Book of Concord, and just being like, oh my goodness, I've got everything wrong backwards, upside down. And the sheer volume of scriptures on this point are irrefutable. And so from that moment on, my reason, which was just like, oh yeah, free will makes total sense all of a sudden was like, yeah, no, you can't possibly, that rational conclusion we all have by nature can't possibly mesh with uh, what God's word says. And again, here we're talking about free will and those things above, like conversion to God and desiring to do the things of God. We're not talking about free will below, like the philosopher's free will. Am I really choosing this hamburger or is this hamburger choosing me? That kind of nonsense. (laughs) We're not talking about predestination and fate at that level. Okay, so third, to the nature of original sin belongs also guilt, namely that because of the fallen, excuse me, because of the fall of Adam, and that hereditary or original evil, all men propagated by human seed are by nature children of wrath. We're all parts of a bad tree bearing bad fruit. And besides other calamities, subject to death and eternal condemnation. Right, so under the curse. Okay, so when we talk about original sin, we're going to talk about defect. We're going to talk about having less than we once had. We're going to talk about what we still have being utterly twisted and corrupted to where we delight in evil things and take no pleasure in good things. And then third, we're going to talk about being under the curse and condemnation of God. So that, th- this is all the state of man after the fall and before his conversion. That's all we're articulating, because we're articulating the essence of original sin. And fallen humanity before renewal by the Holy Spirit is nothing but original sin. That's why, like the scriptures will say, apart from faith you can do nothing, because if you have faith, you're a good tree, you're bearing good fruit. If you don't have faith, you're a bad tree. You're only bearing bad fruit. And whatever civil goodness or civil righteousness you have, you know, you keep the law, you mow your lawn, you, you know, feed your neighbor's cat, whatever it may be, avails as nothing before the judgment seat of God. And indeed, this is where it comes in that all your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Okay, so there's a threefold answer to that question. What is the nature of original sin? Anything uh, you want to mention? Okay. Oh, yeah, please. You were talking about Braveheart and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, what if there's no desire to do it the other way? I mean, here you are with the character. He's getting things, and you're thinking, hey, I like that role. You know, it's like Mel Gibson and, you know, in his movies and stuff like that, where he's, you know, beating up all the bad guys. Yeah, yeah. And you, you like the character. 
I mean, I mean, you're supposed to say, well, hey, you're, that's wrong, but that desire, I say, hey, I like that. I like pulling the beard and cutting the heads yeah, off. Yeah. And well, so there's an important distinction to make there, too. And it's not, so again, I mean, just to kind of get on a soapbox that's barely holding up my weight, uh, the vengeance isn't wrong. Vengeance is the Lord's. And the idea of taking visceral, carnal vengeance is wrong. But the idea of faithfully praying for our enemies, that they would repent, and if they won't, that ultimately God in his own timing would remove them, that's a godly prayer and a godly attitude. And of course, in the end, when God vindicates us judging our enemies and trampling them under our feet, we can rejoice in that day. But then it's not revenge porn. It's the, it's the end of evil, objectively, manifestly, by the one who has the office and jurisdiction to do such a thing, namely Christ, who is true man and in our flesh. He has the office and jurisdiction to, to execute such judgment. And he will. That's the image of him on the white horse with the blood up to the bridle of the horse. We need to just wait for divine justice. Yeah. So, that, so there's the other side of the coin on that one. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yes, please. This is kind of an extension of Chris's question. It's more, we understand we can't run off and live in a monastery and be completely separate from the world. But if we're aware of the sinful nature of movies and TV and I'm on the internet and the shoes I looked at 10 minutes ago just popped up and, you know, it's like, how do you live knowing the sinful, I mean, is it good enough to be aware of your sin and repentant of it and make every effort to not fall into it? How, I don't know. I, mean, I, think, the, I think that here is, it's just such an important article of the faith for the ultimate health of our soul and so in again just to like zoom all the way out it is of the utmost importance that we recognize that this is the that our that our guilt before god is not merely you know when you said crap on the freeway because somebody cut you off that's like and, and that is by nature because we're so corrupted we think of sins by nature as, do I have any sins this week? Oh, yeah, I remember a couple. Ah, oh, maybe there's a couple more that I've forgotten. Four sins? Four sins? Yep, four. Four. It's a pretty good week. <clears throat> you know, um, that's the kind of unbelief that's being attacked by God. So, and while that's being attacked by God in us, think of what's happening simultaneously as he's attacking the flesh in us, the new man in us is growing wiser and stronger, even if only in the identification of evil, even if only that the new man within us is, is, you know, I'm not trying to get lost in the details of the distinction here, but the new man in us is going, oh, that's how bad the problem is such that then one reaches maturity on this point, not by going, oh, I finally got rid of my, my sinful nature. 
One reaches maturity at this point when he says what St. Paul says. I don't want to be this way. I agree with the law that it is good. I'm on the side of the law against my flesh. I delight in the law. The law isn't burdensome to me. What is burdensome to me is my flesh. These stupid desires that I don't ask for, that I wake up and they're there. And I'm minding my own business. And they're there. And I'm sitting at church. And they're there. And I'm at the communion rail. And they're there. And it is constant with me. And who will save me from this wretchedness? Who will save me from this body of death? and all manner of disgusting corruption. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. That's the final maturity and the final reflection that God wants us to have and wants us to retain throughout this whole life, where so far are we from thinking we can save ourselves or justify ourselves that we acknowledge this inborn corruption. Now, we can fight against the fruits of this. We should cut those off. We should nip the bud before it fruits. We should cut back those branches. We should burn at the, the stump of the old Adam as much as we can. We should fight that good fight and wage war against our sinful selves until our dying breath. And the scriptures teach that equally as strongly. So these two things are true, that we fight a war as if we can absolutely win, even while knowing that the victory is only going to be granted to us in finality through Christ, and that he and he alone has the power to remove this corruption from us. So those two things are simultaneously true. The flesh will latch a hold of either one and abuse it. Oh, you can't really have any victory over this, so you may as well just give in to it. Okay? That, the flesh loves one side of the coin, he refused, the flesh hates both sides held together. So, no, the scriptures instruct you to fight against this as if you will conquer. Okay? The flesh loves the idea of, like, also simultaneously, of like, oh, your sins are just superficial. You can overcome them. You pretty much already are. You only had four sins this week. So, what's a fifth? You know? No big deal. You're pretty righteous. The flesh loves that, too, and loves that self security. It doesn't have to depend desperately on the one to save us from this body of death. The flesh hates faith. So we wage against those desires of the flesh with this other statement, who will save me from this body of death, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. So these two things are true and held in tension by us, and that's spiritual health. Um, Sometimes investigating, I know we're out of time, but investigating, okay, these sinful behaviors, what lies deeper in? That's sometimes very, very profitable. Another thing, and there's very, so there are various ways to cure and help the soul. Another thing is that we suffer from as Americans is our flesh is just too strong. We need to do an end around. You have to bind the strong man before you can plunder his house. Christ means that in a different way, but it's analogous and true in this respect also that sometimes what we have to do is weaken our flesh holistically before we can make any headway against this particular sin or that particular sin. What do I mean concretely? Well, I mean what the Bible says. Scripture, prayer, fasting, and various other things that the saints have noticed for over 2,000 years weaken the flesh so that you can actually make headway. Because if the flesh is super strong, then the desire comes along and you're just acting 
So you want to weaken the flesh holistically. Anyway, more on that, no doubt, later. Let's pick up next week at question 105. The Lord be with you.